The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Today our country celebrates its 245th birthday. Happy birthday, America. It is my opinion that this is the greatest country in the world. And I've been to several other countries. I thank God for this country. Now, right now our country is going through some turbulent times. The political and moral climate in America is very much in turmoil. I think our way of life is under attack. And at times it's really hard not to be angry about what we see going on in the country. It's hard not to hate those who seem bent on destroying this great nation. So I thought it'd be appropriate to look at Yeshua's parable this morning of the Good Samaritan. During Yeshua's life, representatives from various Jewish groups would come to Him and ask Him questions, trying to trick Him, trying to trip Him up. And He answered these trick questions from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and even the Herodians. They had asked him, again, trying to trip him up, and he always answered the questions correctly, and he always answered showing them his authority. He put them all to silence. And in our text for this morning, a lawyer comes forward and asks him a question. In Luke 10, 25, he says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, This lawyer wasn't a lawyer in the sense of we think of joins in Bieber or a divorce attorney or whatever like that. This lawyer was a professional student and defender of the Mosaic Law. They taught the law, they enforced the law, they also judged. The complete Jewish Bible puts it this way, an expert in Torah. That's who this lawyer was, okay? So this is, again, it's not a joins in Bieber type guy, not some ambulance chaser. This is an expert in Torah. These men actually had three different titles throughout the Scripture. They became known as scribes because they preserved the law by writing out copies of the rulings of the ancient rabbis. Secondly, they were called teachers of the law because they often gathered together boys and young men in rabbinical schools and instructed them in the law also lecturing in the courts of the temple. And thirdly, they were called lawyers because they were the men who passed judgment on disputes within the nation. Well, Matthew tells us that this lawyer was a Pharisee. If we look at Matthew 22, 34, it says, But when a Pharisee heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, in Luke, the lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in Matthew, he asks, which is the great commandment? I think they're asking the same question here. This isn't different. Okay, well, you say, well, that, isn't it, there a difference? Well, by inheriting eternal life, he means, how do I get to heaven? And which commandment is the greatest? He's also saying, you know, what do I have to do to get to heaven? So, these are the same questions, I believe. Now, The lawyer and his colleagues often debated which commandment was the greatest. This was something in Christ's time that happened all the time. They sat around and debated, what's the great commandment? 
See, they had identified 613 laws in the Torah. 365 of them were negative. You shall not. 248 of the commandments were positive. You shall. So they spent many hours debating which were the heavy commandments and which ones were light, which ones were great, which ones were small. In Yeshua's day, there were seven schools of the Pharisees. Now, we tend to think of the Pharisees in a negative way, and probably for good reason. But they were righteous people. The Bible says in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it wouldn't make any sense to say this if they weren't righteous people. It would be no big deal to surpass their righteousness if they weren't righteous. Well, these seven schools of the Pharisees, they all took the Bible literally. All right, Hillel was the most progressive school, and they ranged from the most progressive to the most conservative and traditional school, which was Shammai. All right, he's the conservative. Now, there are five other schools which fell in between these two. And these rabbinic schools were always arguing about how to interpret Torah or how to determine what they called the proper yoke. Now, a yoke was how you interpreted Torah. And you would go to a rabbi and you'd ask him questions to find out what his yoke was. And that, when you understand that, it makes a little more sense when Yeshua said, take my yoke upon you. In other words, my interpretation, how I view the Torah. Take that upon you. That's your yoke. The debate always revolved around what is the greatest commandment. The Jews said that the commandments contradict each other by God's design, so they had to know which was the greater. All right, for example, if we look at Exodus 31, 14 and 15, it says, You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. That's kind of serious there. You want to make sure you keep the Sabbath. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. That's clear enough, right? I mean, it makes it clear. You work on the Sabbath, you die, all right? And not to work on the Sabbath. Well, that's what the Torah teaches. Well, the Torah also taught, in Deuteronomy 22.4, you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. Again, not hard to understand. They were to not let animals suffer. If they saw an animal in trouble, they were to help raise it up. They were to help their neighbor. That's clear enough also. But, what do they do if you see your neighbor's animal falling down on the Sabbath? How do they keep one command without breaking the other? And this is why they're always asking, which is the greatest commandment? Because you're going to keep the greatest, you're going to break the lesser one, or the lesser one, right? So that's why they're always arguing this. And you can see here the contradiction. We can't work on the Sabbath, but we have to help the animal out. And if the animal's falling down on the Sabbath, then what do we do? We're in trouble. Well, look at Yeshua's response to the lawyer. He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the exact answer that the Lord gives when asked this question, all right? And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So this lawyer came to test the yoke of Yeshua. How did Yeshua interpret Torah? Yeshua agrees with this man's interpretation. you got to love God. you got to love your neighbor. Now, with 613 individual statutes of the Torah from which to choose, all the schools of the Pharisees agreed on the greatest commandment. That was, love the Lord your God. But when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Shammai's school would answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Hillel's school would be the same. And so was Yeshua's answer. They all answered. They all agreed. This is the number one commandment. This is the greatest commandment. Now, where did this answer come from? Well, it comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Anybody know what the Jews called this passage? Shema. Shema. Shema literally means hear. Hear. It's based on the verbal imperative at the start of the verse. Hear, Israel. This is what you're to do. Listen to this. Now, a careful investigation of the early sources suggests that Deuteronomy 6.4 would probably be the first portion of Torah that Yeshua committed to memory. According to the Babylonian Talmud, Sukkah 42a Jewish boys were taught this biblical passage as soon as they could speak. So as soon as a boy started speaking, you learn Shema. All right? Because this is what Israel's about. You, the, Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your Elohim, with all your heart. So this is what they're given to do. He would have learned this right away. Now when asked, what's the second commandment? Shammah school would answer, keep the Sabbath. See, they put the Sabbath law above loving your neighbor because they said Sabbath was about God. If your neighbor's in trouble on the Sabbath, too bad. You keep the Sabbath. All right, that's, that's how they interpret it. When asked what's the second commandment, Hillel's school would answer, love your neighbor. Yeshua's answer was also, Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor came seventh in Shammah's school, but biblically, it's second. Now, the debate in Yeshua's day was how to interpret the Torah by deciding the greater and lesser commandments. We see this idea of greater and lesser commands in Yeshua's words in Matthew 5.19. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands... And teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When asked which is the greatest commandment, Yeshua said, when he asked this, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second's like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you love God, love your neighbor. Now, so this expert in Torah agreed with Yeshua on the first two commandments. No problems there. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, what's interesting here and what you don't see in so many Bibles, this is why I like the New American Standard. The New American Standard has this in all caps, telling us that it is a quotation, all right? And this is from Leviticus 18.5 that says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. So the words of the law cited by Yeshua not only require that one keep the law, but they require that one keep the whole law and keep it perfectly. That's the thing about the law. The law is, you know, it's all of them. It's it's not like... I've kept 600 of them. What's, I just broke 13. I'm okay, right? No. The law as a whole, you keep all of them or you've broken the whole thing. So not only do you have to love your neighbor, it said you had to love them as yourself. The whole law must be kept. All of it without omissions, without failures. In other words, in order to be justified under the law, you have to keep it perfectly. Listen to what Paul writes on this point in Galatians 3.10. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So you're trying to keep it all, you're trying to obey it all, you're under a curse. Why? Because it's written in the law, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law to do them. So the question we'd have to ask, the number one commandment is love God. Can we do that? In our strength, in our own Strength, apart from God, can we love Him? No, it's impossible. Well then, why does the law tell me to do it? Why does it say to love God with all your heart soul when I can't really do it? What is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul said in Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You just can't do it through the law. Now watch what he says. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what the law does when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and you say, I can't do that, I'm not doing that, it's showing you you're a sinner. It shows you who you are. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now the lawyer goes on to ask Yeshua, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Yeshua, and who's my neighbor? All right, so... He understood this, so let's make this really clear. Who is my neighbor? I think the question is a genuine inquiry. Jewish learning involved asking questions and answering questions with more questions. And this is an important question. Who is my neighbor? i got to love my neighbor as myself. Who is he? Well, the term neighbor is used in the Tanakh in twofold manner. It's wider and more general and narrower and more specific. In common usage, it includes anyone with whom we may come in contact having respect unto our fellow man. In its specific sense, it signifies one who is near to us by ties of blood or habitation. Now, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we get a good idea of exactly what it means by neighbor. This text in Exodus 11.2 says, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver, gold, jewelry. You know what this is talking about? This is before they left Egypt. They're to go to the Egyptians. So the reference here is to the Egyptians among whom Israel lived, and they're to ask their neighbor, the Egyptians, for the gold, for the silver. They're plundering the place before they leave. 
Well, the word strangers along with neighbors are represented as those who we are to love. The Bible tells us we're to love our neighbor, we're to love strangers. In the same chapter that we find the command to love their neighbor, we find this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am Yahweh, your God. So the idea neighbor is not restricted just to those who are friends or those who you know. Now, some of the rabbinic schools taught that fellow students of the law were neighbors because, you know, they got to argue about everything, so they're arguing who's a neighbor. They said, well, it's the fellow students of the law. So it's limited to the scribes and Pharisees. That's who the neighbors were. All right. Some of the rabbinic schools taught that it was wider than that. They taught that your neighbor was every blood relative, every friend or person living in your locality. and Anyone in your community is your neighbor. Other schools taught that it was much broader than that. They taught that every Jew was a neighbor, but only Jews. All right, So no person could be a neighbor if they were not a Jew. Some schools were much more liberal. They taught that pagans and even Romans were your neighbor. And this is the thing you got to define. I mean, if you have to love your neighbor, you better have an idea who it is, right? Because you don't want to have to love anybody you don't need to, right? <laughs> when asked, who is my neighbor? Shammai would answer, the religious Jew. What about the non-religious Jew? What about the pagan or Roman? No, no way at all. You don't have to love them. They're not your neighbor. What about the Samaritan? No, not at all. All right. When asked who is my neighbor, the school of Hillel would say the religious Jew, even the non-religious Jew. He even included the pagan and the Roman because they were created in the image of God. What about the Samaritan? No way. Because, listen, they didn't, commit, they didn't consider the Samaritan as being made in the image of God. They viewed them as subhuman. All right? So, they're not your neighbor. We're totally excluding them. When asked, who is my neighbor? Yeshua answered the lawyer's question with the parable about the Good Samaritan. So, let's look at the parable and see if we can understand who it is that we are called to love. Luke 10.30, Yeshua replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, Here's a man, he's stripped and he's half dead. Without his clothing, we don't know what community he belongs to. We don't know where to stick him. And we do that today, don't we? You look at people and you say, okay, you judge them by their clothing. This is where they belong. That's where they belong. They didn't know the guy doesn't have anything on. They don't know. What, is he a Pharisee? Is he a priest? Is he a Roman? We don't know. All we know is he's dying and he's in great need. That's all we know. All right. Now, notice it says that he's half dead. Um, that's significant, okay? So hang on to that. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, now, first of all, culturally, this is hysterical, okay? Because when you say he passed by on that side, you think of a four-lane highway, and the guy's over here, and you're walking all the way around him. This road that they're talking about was mostly a single-lane path on the side of a mountain. Okay, so you can't really walk around them. You have to just step over them. 
All right, it'd be impossible to avoid this man. Okay, so they didn't just, you know, let's pretend he's not there. They literally stepped over them. The priest and the Levite are full-time servants of God, and they're on their way home from serving in the temple. And this priest was of the party of the Sadducees. So here's this religious Jew, and he goes out of his way to walk around this dying man. Why? Why didn't he help this man in need? Was he just some religious hypocrite? How could he claim to be a servant of God and ignore God's law? He knew what the law said. Leviticus 19.18 You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. You know, whenever we see that, he gives a command, then he says, I'm Yahweh. What's that mean? You better do this because I'm God, okay? And I'm telling you, this is what you got to do. So why didn't he help this man? Well, he didn't help this man because he was keeping the greater command of Torah. All right? Leviticus 21.1 says, And Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people. So as a priest, he couldn't touch a dead body. It would make him unclean. Now, he didn't know whether this man was dead, but he's unwilling to risk in, uh, incurring corpse impurity on the chance that he may be able to help. See, in the eyes of the Sadducee, this prohibition in the Torah superseded all humanitarian needs. To him, the command of not touching the dead was greater command than loving your neighbor. So he didn't do it. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed on by on the other side. This Levite was also of the party of the Sadducees. He avoids the man also because in Torah says he's not to defile himself. So he is obeying Torah. Now this parable that Yeshua is giving is a common Jewish parable style. The rabbis would use a priest, a Levite in their stories, and then the third party was always a Pharisee. So this expert of Torah, he was a Pharisee, and so he's expecting Yeshua to say, then along came a Pharisee. All the Pharisaic schools said that the commandment to love your neighbor is greater than the cleanliness code. So he's thinking, okay, he's going to put me, the Pharisee, in there. Every Pharisee that was serious about what he believed would have helped this guy. Then Yeshua blew this man's mind when he says, but a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I come back. All right, now, Yeshua ruins the story. Instead of saying Pharisee, he says, a Samaritan came along. Well, who is this Samaritan? What is this? Let, let me give you a little history here because we have to understand who the Samaritans are to understand this story. After Solomon's death, the house of Israel was split into two kingdoms. Right? We're all familiar with that. The ten northern tribes were known as the house of Israel, and the two southern tribes were known as the southern kingdom or Judah. The capital city of Judah was Jerusalem. The capital city of Israel was Samaria. 
Now, the name Samaria eventually came to describe the district in which the city, the city stood, and later the whole northern kingdom was just called Samaria. Well, in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and captured Samaria. All right, they just wiped out the city. They, they deported the citizens that were, you know, higher class citizens. And they imported about five different groups of people from the east into that area who intermarried with the remaining Israelites, resulting in a nation of half-breeds, which was a very evil thing to a devout Jew. Worse yet, the true religion of Israel became intermingled with their heathen idolatry. These people they brought in, they shared their religion, they just all got, it got all mixed up. All right, well, later, God took the southern kingdom into captivity. And after the Babylonian exile, when they began to go back in the 6th century, the southern kingdom was allowed to return to the land and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. All right? Well, the Samaritans offered to help to rebuild the temple when they went back to do it. And when their offer was rejected, in spite, they sought every way they could to stop the Jews from rebuilding the temple. Ezra talks about this in Ezra 4, 1 through 5. The same thing happened later when Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. It talks about it in Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3. All right? So the Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, opposite Shechem, about 400 B.C., which they dedicated to Zeus Zenyas. All right? Now, John Hyrcanus, the Hasmonean ruler of Judea, destroyed it and Shechem in about 128 B.C. So these actions all resulted in a continued hostility between these two groups. The Samaritans continued to worship on Mount Gerizim, and they accepted only the first five books of Moses as inspired. They had what they called the Samaritan Pentateuch. It has a slightly different textual history than the five books of Moses as found in the Masoretic text that most of our translations come from. So the Jews viewed the Samaritans as biological and religious half-breeds. All of these events and factors had led to an intense hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews by Yeshua's day. Centuries of enmity left deep-seated hatred between these two groups. So, we have ethnic, racial, and religious issues here that made the Jews feel disdain for the Samaritans. They were ceremonially unclean, they were racially impure, and they were religiously heretical. And therefore, they were avoided. We see this in the text in John 4.9, where Yeshua is talking to the Samaritan. The Samaritan woman said to him, she's talking to Yeshua, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? That's true. Why? Because they hate them. And so she's shocked. How, how are you even talking to me? You know, why would a Jew even talk to me in a friendly way? You know, we see this hostility in Luke 9, 52-56. And it says, And he, that's referring to Yeshua, sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. So they go into Samaria to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. No, we don't want you here. Get out of here. We don't want you. Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, oh, you're not being very nice. You won't help our Lord. What do they want to do? Let's call down fire from heaven. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, did they actually think they could do this? I'm not sure. I, I get, I, you know, can we call down fire and just let burn them all up, Lord? This shows us the hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans won't allow Yeshua to spend the night in their village, so James and John said, let's just burn them all up. They're, they're worthless anyway. Listen, there was no rabbinic school that interpreted the term neighbor liberal enough to include those hated, detested Samaritans. None of the schools. All right? The scribes and the Pharisees considered the Samaritans as the most hated people on earth. Our text tells us that this Samaritan felt compassion for this hurt man. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The word compassion here literally conveys the idea of a heart contracting convulsively. In other words, you feel this because of the hurt of this person. You see this person, you see their need, and you're physically affected by it. His heart was squeezed by what he saw. He was overwhelmed by the human need that he saw here. The Greek word used here for compassion is splagnizomai. And splagnizomai is found only in the Gospels, and in every usage it's always related to need. You see a need, you feel this. The same word is used three times in Mark, of Yeshua's compassion for human need and suffering. Now remember, the Samaritan Bible is the Torah. What did this Samaritan decide about love your neighbor? Well, he said this is greater than the cleanliness laws. The Samaritan risked much more here than ritual defilement. That's what we have to understand in this text. He could have been implicated in this crime. All right? If a despised Samaritan had been found with a man who had been brutally murdered, it's likely he would have been charged with that crime. This good Samaritan was willing to risk any danger in order to help this man out. Ken Bailey, in his book Peasant Eyes, writes this. And this is, Ken Bailey writes a lot of uh, cultural books to help us understand the culture. Hopefully you're seeing from this text that once you understand the culture, once you get some background, the text comes alive, okay? You read it and it gets exciting. Well, listen to what Bailey says about this situation. He says, an American cultural equivalent would be a Plains Indian in 1875 walking into Dodge City with a scalp cowboy on his horse, checking into a room over the local saloon and staying the night to take care of him. Any Indian so brave would be fortunate to get out of the city alive, even if he had saved the cowboy's life. Now, you, I think we understand that, right? Okay? You're going into Dodge City with you, you know, an Indian, and you got a scalp cowboy on your horse. That's not going to look well, okay? They're not going to ask a lot of questions, okay, at this point, all right? So this Samaritan does this at great risk to himself. He acted out of compassion. He helped this man in need. Yeshua then asked the expert in Torah, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So Yeshua is asking, who's the neighbor? Now, most commentators, and you need to look this up, and many Bible teachers say that your neighbor is anyone with a need. So in this story, who would the neighbor be then? The man that was beat up, right? 
According to the text, though, who's the neighbor? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. All right? So who's the neighbor? It's the one who showed mercy. Who was that? Was it the guy that was beaten up? No, it's the Samaritan. The neighbor here, remember the guy asked, who's my neighbor? He said, well, it's the person that's most hated in the world. It's the Samaritan. He's the one who showed mercy. All right? So what's the answer to the man's original question, who's my neighbor? It's the Samaritan. So when asked, who is it that you have to love? Who is it? It's the Samaritan. Yeshua was forcing this man to say, my greatest enemy, the person I despise most in life, is my neighbor who I have to love. Yeshua says to the man, you go and love your enemy. This is exactly what Yeshua taught in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. People, it is stuff like this that pushes Christianity way beyond anything people can understand or imagine. Because if we live like this, what do you think this would do to the world around us? How do you think it would affect them? Do you think they'd be more open and maybe less critical of Christians? Yeshua said that they had heard you were to hate your enemies. That's interesting because as far as we know, this expression doesn't occur in the Tanakh or in rabbinic Judaism. But the idea is found at Qumran. The people of Qumran had withdrawn to the wilderness to await for the end of the age. And they were called the sons of light. And they are equipping themselves through intense discipline, through rituals of purity, and scriptural study to overcome their enemy, which was the sons of darkness. Now, the manual of discipline, which is something, a Qumran teaching that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the manual of discipline, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it says, "...to love all the sons of light, each according to his lot in the counsel of God, and to hate..." all the sons of darkness, each according to his guilt and the vengeance of God. All right? So Yeshua is teaching that we are to love our enemies, and this is completely radical teaching, all right? This is powerful teaching about the inclusiveness of love. This kind of love that Yeshua advocates embraces even enemies. Now, to those listening to Yeshua that day, he's going through this parable, And it just had to blow their minds. How could anyone love his enemy, first of all? All right? Enemies don't invoke love in anyone. Yeshua, however, wanted to make the point that he considered our neighbor to include even our enemies. Now, in other words, nobody is outside the scope of our love, and no one should be. We then are called to manifest love to all people. Now, the problem here is we have to answer the question, what is love? And and our culture used the word love to mean just about anything except what the Bible means by it. Modern society portrays portrays love as an emotional feeling, and if you feel something about that person, then that's good. If you don't, don't worry about it. But that's not what the Bible says, all right? And when you want to understand what the Bible says about love, I think one of the best places to go To get a definition of love, the Bible talks about love a lot. You want to get a definition, you go to 1 Corinthians 13. That's the love chapter. 
All right? It succinctly sums up godly love. This is what godly love looks like. Let's just read through the text. He says, love, Paul says, love is. It's patient. Are we in trouble already? Should we go on? (laughs) It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Hmm. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So godly love covers the faults of others and believes what otherwise is unbelievable. It hopes in what otherwise is hopeless, and it endures when anything less than love would give up. To live like this is to live a separated life under the Lord. It's to be set apart for Yahweh. This is holiness. And when we live lives like this, the world will know there's something different, something distinct about us. They'll know we're disciples of Yeshua when we live like this. But too often, we come up with so many excuses not to live a life of love. The word love, as used by our Savior in our text, could be synonymous with the word mercy. Because when Yeshua said, love your enemies, He's talking about a merciful spirit. He's talking about tenderness of heart that disposes a person to overlook injuries or treat an offender better than he deserves. While they're cursing, you are blessing. When they come to spite or persecute you, you don't respond as they do. You pray for them. You do them good. This is the love of which Yeshua is talking about. In Matthew 5.44, He says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, this verse teaches us the meaning of, of enemy here, because clearly by enemy he means people who oppose you, people who try to hurt you, people who persecute you. Okay? It's not someone who just pulls in front of you on the interstate. Okay, this is a persecutor. This is someone who's going after you. All right? With harmful intentions. Uh, It could include severe hostility. This same Greek word for persecute is connected with murder in Acts 7, 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So in Matthew 5, 44, Yeshua said, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Pray for your enemies. This is one of the deepest forms of love because it means that you have to really want something good to happen to them. You might do nice things for your enemy without any genuine desire for things to go well with them, but prayer for them in the presence of God who knows your heart and prayer is interceding with God on their behalf. Now, he's not saying here that we should pray for them to be struck by lightning or that house should fall on them. Rather, he's saying that we should pray on their behalf to God. It may be a prayer for their conversion. It may be for their repentance. But the prayer Yeshua has in mind here is for their good. And when is the last time we prayed for an enemy? Again, someone who is actively persecuting us. That's an enemy. This is what Christ did. 
In Luke 23, 34, it says, And Yeshua said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And they cast lots for his garments. And he's praying for those who hung him on the cross. He was unjustly condemned and tortured to death, and he prayed for those who did it. That's Christ's example. We're to be Christ-like, right? Well, Stephen followed this example of the Lord in praying for those who despitefully used and persecuted him in Acts 7.59. And as they were stoning Stephen, that's really good persecution there, people. That's okay. Active hostility, right? He called out, Lord Yeshua, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I think what we have to understand is when we pray for our enemies, we are engaging in a God-like act. And Ephesians tells us, Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God. We're called to do that. We're interceding for them as Christ intercedes for us. We're beginning to see them through Christ's eyes. And prayer has a way of changing us as we pray for our enemies. All right. We know who our neighbor is. We know how we're supposed to treat him. What does this parable about the Good Samaritan say to us 21st century American Christians? I don't know any Samaritans. Do you? So how does this apply to me? How does it apply to you? Who are our Samaritans? I think it's different for each of us. It could be different. All right? Yeshua is saying, I want you to love the person that you think is the most disgusting, the person that you despise the most, the person you don't even view as human. Love them. Maybe it's those of a different race than you. Okay? I mean, they're working hard to bring racial tension in this country right now, which I think is not here generally. All right? Maybe it's those of a different religion than you. You just hate them. You can't stand them. Maybe it's those of a different political party than you. (laughs) We have our Samaritans today, people, okay? There's no doubt we have our Samaritans. You just have to identify who is the Samaritan for you. And if you're going to be like Christ... You're going to pray for them. You're going to be, they're going to be your neighbor, and you're going to reach out to them in love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for this text. Lord, it's hard for us to wrap our head around loving our enemies. It's so unnatural to us, but yet it is so Christ-like. Lord, I pray you'd continue to work in our hearts that we would be people who not just know Scripture, but people who live Scripture people who desire to be like you and all their conversation and all their actions, that we would truly be imitators of God as dear children. Thank you, Lord, for your continual grace to us. Continue to teach us, Father. Help us to be open to what you have for us to learn and to live it out in our daily lives. Amen.